Luke chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning, and we'll stay in this passage for the next few weeks. There's a transition. Some of you look forward to this change in the seasons. You look forward all year to this Christmas time. You've got the decorations ready. And uh, as soon as the day arrives for whatever that transition day officially begins in your family, all the old decorations go out and the new ones come in and um, you start dressing differently. All of a sudden you're bright and cheery. You're fun to be around. But your music is annoying, right? You change the station whenever you're in the car and everything changes. Well, that first season came at a, at a big, important time in history, right? The New Testament had been, really, it comes after 400 years of silence, where there's nothing, and, and many in the church are saying, where is God? In the culture at this time, though, it, 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 it is at the beginning, where Rome, Rome has been uh, a world power, right? They've been in power, and they're increasing in power, and they have been in just constant, for centuries, war and expansion. And then Caesar Augustus becomes the sole ruler, sets or transitions the republic into an empire, and really ushers in the Pax Romana, which is 200 years of peace. And so really it's a time where people are just rejoicing. We've got so much in this world. Who needs God? So the church is asking, where is God? The world's saying, who needs God? And that's where we find the gospel's writers. That's, that's where, where they meet us. Right? In, in light of history, we are really insignificant, and we're powerless, and yet we remain full of self-sufficient pride. So the one thing we find in this birth narrative of Jesus Christ is the opposite. Right? God orchestrates history to fulfill his redemptive purposes through a humble Messiah. And so before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we do have a season where we can reflect upon such an important event in history, really the climax of history, the center point of history is Christ's first coming, his birth, his ministry, his death, all of it, Lord, for our redemption. It was in order for us to have peace with you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to reflect upon these things, maybe in a fresh way this morning, that our hearts would be, once again, turned to you in worship, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would set aside the distractions and the concerns whether they be later today, later this week, or the worries and burdens that we have even heavy upon our heart, Lord, we can cast those upon you now, knowing that you care for them, that you care for us, and that you will give us this time to rest, to recover, to find refuge in the gospel. And so speak to us, Lord. Soften our hearts to hear it and to respond in obedience. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, Luke seems to have collected the material for these opening chapters specifically, but for much of his gospel... Uh, through long conversations with Mary. Uh, It's revealing what he shares about history's most significant birth in this passage. The first thing we'll see is a, a sovereign Messiah. If you're following along in your outline, that's your first blank. A sovereign Messiah from verses 1 through 3. We read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. All the world, referring to the Roman-occupied territory. This reflects their proud hyperbole. Uh, When Octavian became the sole ruler of Rome and transitioned it into an empire, the Senate, the Roman Senate, ended up voting to name him Augustus, which means eminent, majestic. You could even translate it holy or uh, revered. And so after the death of Julius Caesar, Augustus refers to his adoptive father. And at his death, he, he, uh, he names Octavian as his son so that he would be heir. And so Augustus refers to his adoptive father as divine, and he labels himself really the son of God. In fact, inscriptions at Halicarnassus refer to him as savior of the whole world. And so, of course, imperial worship is really being established right now in this time as he is ruling and reigning. And he's ushered in so much peace that the people have no problem turning to him in worship, giving him honor and glory. So this imperial worship is is ramping up quickly, and it's becoming really the accepted religion, which later on poses a a grave threat, you know, challenges the early church in many ways. Verse 2 poses a problem here because we read, this is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Well, the census most likely took place around 6 between 6 and 4 BC, according to our biblical timeline, but Josephus states Quirinius's governorship of Syria between 6 and 7 AD. That's a significant difference. How do you account for a difference of 10 to 13 years? Well, a few solutions have been proposed. If you look at the ESV, some of you have a a footnote that suggests when could be translated as before. And so it's saying this was the registration that took place before Quirinius was governor, right? That's an interesting way to to phrase it, and 
it's not, doesn't have very good grammatical support to translate it as before. Um, it's, it's a, I guess, a small possibility that that could be a translation. And so that is a possibility. But it's not a strong one. Secondly, another option is that the census was merely a local one, but it was affected, right? It affected the inhabitants of Israel. It was for them in particular, but it was all part of a larger scale and a long-lasting attempt to gather statistics for taxation purposes right, that Caesar uh, Augustus instituted. And so we know that he was, in, he was very methodical about getting statistics, getting this information, but there's actually no example um, in extra-biblical history that shows he ever did a, a, an empire-wide um, registration. So it's possible that, that Luke is just consolidating a number of local ones into one particular registration. There's a third option that I kind of lean towards, and that's this. Josephus could be wrong. <laughs> right? I, I trust an inspired Luke over an uninspired historian who incidentally made other recorded mistakes. And so there's really not a, a simple or obvious explanation for the discrepancy. Maybe some additional archaeological evidence will corroborate Luke in the future. However, we should confidently confess that Scripture's testimony is clear and trustworthy. Now, we don't have to wait for archaeology to affirm what Luke has already told us to be true. Now, we can assume it either will reveal itself in some time in the future, or it will be when we're in glory, right? At some point, this discrepancy will be solved, but the truth of the matter is in his word. It's recorded there. Whether Josephus is wrong or extra-biblical history is lacking, we should readily adopt Luke's account as the infallible record on the matter. And to focus on this is to miss the point, really. The bigger point is Luke's contrast of two kingdoms that's taking place here. The kingdom of Rome, with all of its earthly glory, is about to be infiltrated by a heavenly kingdom that enters the region in relative obscurity. And God used this pseudo-savior, a false savior of the world, to contribute to the fulfillment of his divine redemptive purposes. So the one true God ordained a Roman census to bring about the birth of the one true Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And so we have a Messiah who is sovereign. He directs kings and rulers, even from the womb, right? including those who set themselves up as gods, as if they are pawns on a chessboard. Whereas Augustus and Cornelius thought they were expanding their power, in reality, God was using them to lay the foundations of his kingdom. God orchestrated events in such a way that Mary, a pregnant virgin from Nazareth in Galilee, would end up in Bethlehem, the city of David, at the time when she would deliver her child. And we'll see why that is so important. So Luke sets out to write his gospel to provide his readers 
with a certainty concerning the things you've been taught. He says that in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. I want you to have a certainty. I want you to be assured of the things that you've been told. And so he provides dates and names and the details of events in order to give believers evidence that supports their faith and hope. It's to give them that assurance to bolster their faith. So how do these verses serve that goal? Well, they provide us with the certainty that even when wicked rulers make inconvenient decrees, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. God turns what men intend for evil and uses it for the good of for his own glory and for the good of his church. Genesis 50, verse 20. In fact, all things serve his glory and our good. Romans 8, 28. Even things that absolutely devastate us. You might receive a concerning medical diagnosis. You might suffer the loss of family or friends. You might experience emotional or psychological trauma from past abuses. God is using it all. He doesn't waste a single trial in your life. All of it contributes to the purpose that he has of forming you into the likeness of his son from one degree of glory to the next. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And so God's sovereignty is the ground of his faithfulness to bring into the world a promised Messiah. And we see this in verses 4 through 5. Although Joseph had been raised in Bethlehem, at some point, he migrated to up north, some between 70 to 90 miles. Most people think the journey that they traveled coming from Nazareth was 90, as they would have gone around on a, a typical track around Samaria. But Joseph had been raised in, in Bethlehem. He migrated to Nazareth. And pottery, pottery samples actually confirm that other families made the same transition around that time. They were not the only family that made that trip. Nazareth was, like I said, roughly uh, 85, 90 miles away by foot. If you're traveling by foot, that would have taken four to seven days. And that's traveling quite a distance every day. So it's difficult to imagine Mary in her third trimester making, at a minimum, a three to four day journey, more likely a week. Going from Nazareth to Bethlehem, it's, it's difficult to imagine that on foot. And so many have assumed that she was riding a donkey. However, the text later on will indicate that this was a, a poor family. We, we know that they, they could only offer, in, in, look at Luke chapter 2, verse 24. They could only offer two young pigeons, right? a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So we don't actually... Uh, well, we know that this comes from Leviticus uh, 12, which, which was an alternative offering if you couldn't afford uh, the lamb, and if you couldn't afford the, the greater expensive sacrifice. So this is a poor family, unlikely candidates to own a donkey. Um, it's possible that they borrowed one, and some have suggested that they must have found one borrowed, especially with her pregnancy, but... That's speculation. We really don't have any indication that she was riding upon a donkey. Many have wondered why Mary was there at all. 
right? She didn't need to register in Bethlehem. That wasn't her hometown. It was Joseph's. So why didn't she just stay in Nazareth? Well, this was, uh, I mean, just think about it. Put yourself in, in their shoes. It's quite possible that they wanted to be together uh, as she's nearing her due date. Um, maybe she preferred not to be left by herself around people who possibly despised her for a scandalous pregnancy. And it's also possible, I really hope this one's true, that she intentionally went with Joseph because she knew something about what the prophets foretold. We might ask, Mary, did you know? (laughs) Of course she knew something, but how much? We cannot be certain, but her song, this song, not the modern one by Mark Lowry, but, but the song that she, she wrote that Luke recorded for us, back in chapter 1, verses 32 through 52, it, it reveals a very informed perspective for a young virgin, for a young woman. She understood God's word. There's numerous allusions to the Old Testament in that song. And so Luke highlights their return to Bethlehem, connecting it to Joseph's Davidic lineage, which we read in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So the faithfulness of God is a constant theme in scripture. God gave promises to Abraham and then he reiterated them to the patriarchs. And then every prophet, priest, and king that follows them represents another aspects of God, uh, other aspects of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. Right? The promised Messiah was always in view in the Old Testament, whether by type or anti-type, right? whether by comparison or contrast. And so God was faithful to fulfill his promise to David by sending his son. Because God is faithful, we can trust him to bring us all the way home. Faith is trusting that God knows the way even when we can't see it. And so we cannot be certain whether Joseph and Mary understood that this census was fulfilling a prophecy, but we know that they trusted God as they went. But they still had to go, most likely on foot. Think about this. We struggle to get 10,000 steps in a day. Some of you obsess over it. Make trips up and down your stairs to complete the, the goal. Mary, very near her due date, took roughly 180,000 steps in less than a week. Remember who Luke was interviewing in order to get these details. As Mary reflected on this journey, apparently she didn't focus on her hardship. And she didn't mention the blisters and the soreness. She didn't focus on her pain at all, it would seem. Maybe she didn't want any, anything 
to deflect our attention away from the unique way in which God was faithfully orchestrating the fulfillment of his promises. Right? One way or another, God would use this experience. Now, on this side of the cross, with the advantage of hindsight, Mary understood that there was really only one important detail to express to Luke's readers. We must see the hand of providence guiding everyone and everything according to his glorious plan. And so the progress here is a a sovereign Messiah to a promised Messiah. And then in verses 6 to 7, a humble Messiah. Even the structure of this passage should suggest simplicity and humility. While the miraculous circumstances precede the child's birth, which you can read prior to this in chapter 1, Miraculous circumstances precede the child's birth. Incredible scenes will follow. A host of angels in the sky. We'll look at that next week. But the mundane facts of the birth itself are shared in one magnificently plain sentence. Look at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So despite this obvious reality, right, that it's just a, a simple explanation of his birth, there are some early church fathers who sought to infuse this verse with miraculous meaning. They made the scene entirely unrealistic. For, for instance, some took the fact that Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths all by herself to mean that she must not have experienced any pain. They, thought, they, they taught that she had no labor or pain from childbirth. It's, it's really not that different from the assertion that baby Jesus didn't fuss or cry, that it was a silent night. I like what Andrew Peterson says in in his song, Labor of Love. It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of Davidstown. And the stable was not clean. And the cobblestones were cold. And little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. So Mary experienced labor pains in an unfamiliar and uncomfortable environment, no doubt. On the other hand, some have overstated Joseph and Mary's despair. Maybe you've imagined they're standing at the entrance of of Bethlehem Inn. They're tired, they're exhausted from their journey. Mary is breathing through heavy contractions a minute or two apart. And Joseph is frantically searching for a place to lay her down. And then the innkeeper comes to the door and sees their condition, and then he just points to the no vacancy sign above them and slams the door in their face. From there, they stumble upon a stable filled with every kind of farm animal and stench you can imagine. Joseph spots a vacant cattle stall. Mary delivers the child. She lays him in a feeding trough that's still wet from the animal's slobber and snot. 
right? Our imaginations just get the better of us. But the biblical text is not nearly as elaborate as Hollywood or some of our Christmas carols suggest. The reality appears to be somewhere in the middle of these two extremes. The word in itself here, cataluma, refers to a guest room in Luke chapter 22, verse 11. And so had he intended to refer to a traveler's lodge or an inn where many guests would have stayed, he, he would have used pandokion which is what is used in the Good Samaritan. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, as he finds the injured person, he brings him to an inn, which there is is a translation of the Greek word pandokion, and there he pays for him to stay and receive the care that he needs. So it would make sense that Luke would use that same language if this were the place that the birth was taking place, that Jesus' birth took place. Instead, because it's translated as a guest room, where in, in a later text, in chapter 22, where they're, taking the Lord, where they're enjoying the Lord's Supper together in an upper room, we can assume that something similar is taking place here. They're in some kind of guest room. Considering how small Bethlehem was, it's doubtful that a traveler's lodge would have been needed there. Um, we don't know how long the couple was there for registration, but it seems unlikely that Mary was going into labor while they were on their journey or that she, you know, got there and delivered immediately. It just says while they were there, and we don't know how long that was. doesn't seem to have been as urgent as maybe some stories have portrayed. But in a city overcrowded due to the census, at a small city where everyone's coming back to, to be counted, they were probably staying with family or friends in a two-story structure where it was not uncommon for the people to occupy the upstairs floor with animals downstairs, and that sounds ridiculous to us. But it's, it was common practice, right? Where they would have people upstairs and the animals downstairs, they would obviously have to keep it clean in order to be living under the same roof with their animals. We don't know how many animals would have been there. In fact, the text doesn't mention a single animal. Not a donkey or a cow or a lamb or anything. But it does mention a manger. Right? So, again, imaginations run wild with that fact, that detail. Now, it's not typical that you have a feeding trough converted into a crib and keep it inside your house. That's unlikely to be the case. So it's probably that they had been staying on the floor with where the animals were. This most likely is not happening during the winter, another fact that we can discuss at other time. But it's possible that the animals were even removed during this time as they needed to fill the home with, with additional guests. And so they didn't completely furnish the room for them. They didn't give them the royal treatment by any means. They even didn't give them the guest room, the better room. They gave them the floor where the, right, where the animals stay. But it's very possible that they'd cleaned up the manger, that they wiped it down and, you know. I, I'm not suggesting that the whole thing was sanitized and that Jesus came in, that was, was born in some hospital setting. 
That's not the case either. But hopefully it corrects some false assumptions that we have about that night. They didn't have a nicely furnished room. They did not receive royal treatment from their hosts, but they probably weren't treated like the scum of the earth either. They were probably with family or close friends. So while the circumstances are fairly mundane, that in itself makes a significant theological point. The birth of Jesus evokes praise even when it is utterly plain. On the night of his birth, the Son of God slept in a feeding trough. Dirty or relatively clean, this is a remarkable fact. It's only striking that Jesus became the firstborn son of Mary if you understand exactly who he was before his birth. In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 2.9, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. This child was truly man and truly God. He was not created, but as the second person of the Trinity, all things were created through him and for him. Colossians 1.16, he is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Kent Hughes said, the wonder of the incarnation, the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God became a baby. And so the moment his skin felt the cool air, he should have been worshipped and praised by everything that has breath. Instead, his mother wrapped him in swaddling claws and laid him in a manger. His mother should have delivered him in a master room of a king's palace. Instead, she didn't even have a room. And we know his birth was only the beginning of his descent. Christ humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, the symbol of God's curse, according to Deuteronomy 21. The manger has Golgotha for a backdrop. It has the cross in the background. That's, you know, there's little trinkets that come out during Christmas that are sometimes abysmal, right, and, and should never be recreated or, or kept in your home. However, the, there's an image that, that, you know, puts a manger in front of the, the scene of the cross, right, without Christ in, in the picture, but there's just a scene there, right, of a manger and the hill behind it. I love that picture. Because in one scene, it tells the story of Christ's first coming, of his advent. Jesus was born to die. And in his death, he defeated. In his death, he defeated everything that holds us captive. Phil Riken said, he did not save us from a distance. But he came as close to us as he possibly could, sympathizing with us in our suffering. So the paradox of Christian faith is that the way up is down. Because Christ is humble, we can die to ourselves. And we can place our hope in him. 
The humiliation of the Messiah means that we have a sympathizing Savior who meets us in our greatest moments of weakness and says, come to me. The fact that a sovereign God can send his promised son in such humble conditions heightens our trust and compels us to repent and to turn to him. So let's do so now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, once again, this story that we've heard so many times, and yet, Lord, we can learn something new every time we reflect and meditate upon it. Something that brings fresh conviction or fresh assurance and certainty, even as Luke intended it to. Lord, establish us in our faith during this time. Cause us to be renewed, restored, encouraged, equipped, built up. And then to take that joy that we receive, the joy of our salvation, and share it with others. Lord, open a door for us to have opportunities, whether it be with family, friends, or strangers. speak about the true meaning of Christmas, to point them to the true Savior of the world, and even to emphasize his humility as it's described here by Luke, and that it would humble us in our own lives. First of all, as we submit ourselves to you and your sovereign lordship, and as we live for your purposes rather than our own. And for your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, Once in Royal David's City, hymn number 322.